The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Copenhagen, where they've closed the vaccine program completely, midnight in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country, half past one in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 2.45 a.m., Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 5 a.m. in Perth. I'm very sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney. And a very convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri for our listeners across the Pacific. Uh, (laughs) Last week... I played our first recitation of the time zones from five years ago, May 2017, and it was seriously lame, so I'm glad it's gotten better. Uh, Happy fifth birthday to the Mark Stein Club. Happy Rotuma Day to our Rotuman listeners. Rotuma is a Fijian island, and Rotuma Day is a day to celebrate the session of the island to Her Britannic Majesty, the Queen Empress, Queen Victoria, on May the 13th, 1881. A lot of great Rotumans out there, especially in the Oz Kiwi rugby world, as I'm sure you know. Uh, the Poet Laureate of New Zealand is half Rotuman. So happy Rotuma Day, happy Stein Club, fifth birthday, according to taste. Uh, let's get straight to your question. We'll take some questions on what you like about the Stein Club. Uh, There's no point complaining to me about uh, how this stinks and that stinks on uh, 11 uh, months of the year, but uh, on our anniversaries, I I do pay more attention uh, to them. Uh, So Joe Patterson said, the rest of the time I'm just out of it and, you know, just doing my own thing. But but I do pay attention to the because they tend to uh, bother me more. Uh, if people are unhappy. So if you're unhappy, let me know what about the club is making you unhappy. Joe Patterson says, having been absent from the Mark Stein Club, I recently re-upped for another year. Well, thank you for coming home, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for that. We do have people who do that for one reason or another. Uh, They join and then they forget to uh, resubscribe or they... Uh, discover that at a time when you can't actually, you've got to make a 70-mile round trip to get baby formula for your infant. That's costing you so much you don't have money for fripperies like the Mark Stein Club. So I thank you for rejoining, Joe. Uh, Joe says, I did so because you are, in my opinion, one of the few voices standing up against the various forms of insanity that is rampant not only in America, but so many countries around the globe. May you be able to continue doing so for a long time. Yeah, I'm not 
saying anything I haven't said before, but for me, it's the big issues that matter that will determine your future. And people, all the prime ministers and presidents who uh, invited me in for a chinwag about my book, uh, America Alone, 15 years ago, had they actually acted uh, as they assured me they were going to do on various aspects of that book, we wouldn't be in the mess we are in now. And it's important to keep talking about the important stuff. You know, I, I say people keep trying to get me to do that. You know, oh, this, this, this or that person is uh, running in a an American state or is standing in uh, some Canadian riding or some Scottish or Irish constituency. And that's all very well. There are, there are thousands of people you can go to who are fascinated by that, who are interested in that, who don't follow uh, football, don't follow basketball, don't follow cricket. So politics is their team sport. And if that's, that's all fine and dandy. But there are thousands and thousands of places you can go for that. And, it, and it's not why I'm here. And I particularly feel that after the last two years. You know, something, two, the last two years, if it has done nothing else for you, it should have made you rethink the primacy of politics. Because elective politics failed, basically, uh, over the last two years. I'm not even talking about uh, America, where it's dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt election system. Uh, managed to transfer the, quote, leadership of the free world into a guy who couldn't be the leadership uh, of his Mahjong club, you know, which we all know. We all know. <laughs> you can, oh, it was, the, it was the Department of Homeland Security says there's never been a more secure election in the history of these United States. Yeah, and we've got some stumble bum who can't string a sentence together, who stops talking in the middle of sentences, and you expect the rest of the world to believe that he's the president of the United States. So set that to aside for one moment, because that's a unique bit of all-American crapola that we're all supposed to string along with. And if you notice, most of the Butch Boys on Cumulus with the hard rock theme music are stringing along with it. I don't. The American election system is rubbish, and uh, in this in this case, uh, we wound up with a con. Uh, whoever, all we can say for certain is there are three hundred and whatever million Americans, and the one guy you can say for certain is who isn't running the country is Joe Biden, nor that nitwit Veep of his. But in the other, everywhere else, there has been a total failure of politics too, um, including uh, not just the uh, Anglosphere democracies, uh, but in continental Europe too. Uh, there's been a failure of politics so that it doesn't really matter whether you have a left-wing government like uh, Justin or a right-of-centre government like Boris, politics has failed, opposition. And, and here's why I say, you know, pay less attention to who's, you know, running for this or standing for that or whatever, because there's been a complete, you know, in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, 
Boris's ministry reacted badly to the situation uh, when the COVID came along. But the opposition was worse. It provided no opposition to it. It just wanted more. Whatever Boris was doing, they were cheerleading, but they just wanted more of it. And uh, you saw the same situation with Scott Morrison in Australia, and you see the same situation with Justin Trudeau, where that awful fellow, can't remember his name now. Uh, what was the guy with the Irish name? I can't remember him. I've completely blanked him out because he's that big of a nothing. Uh, he provided no serious, coherent opposition in Parliament. So Parliament and politics and all that stuff has proved very irrelevant and is relevant to me only in so far, just as a thought, that the last two years have been a blizzard of lies, as I repeat. Almost nothing we were told has proven true in the fullness of time. And my minimum, actually, if we're going to be interested in parliamentary politics, is that no one who's gone along with any of the last two years should be eligible for any public office ever again. Uh, Eric Dale says, uh, hey Mark and fellow club members, I'm old enough to remember when the left was for free speech. Since the internet age began, hardcore pornography has been accessible with a few pushes of a button and a decent internet connection. While I think that the left would continue to defend my right to view multi-partner clown porn, uh, is, is, are you being literal here, or is that some kind of new kink I'm not up to? Clown porn, because <laughs> I really... <laughs> I really have no... And not if it involves getting into the clown car. I have no interest in that at all. They've gone in the complete opposite direction when it comes to questioning the government. You've well covered the AstraZeneca vaccine injuries and the foul-ups of our ruling class are piling up faster than the rate of inflation. Is there a connection between the push to censor and the failures of our ruling class? Yeah, I think I think there is. That actual... I don't know quite why you brought up the hardcore porn. One of, one of the points, I'm, I'll just say something about this. One of the tragedies of the internet when it came along. I made this point on a Mark Stein cruise a couple of years back with uh, Tal Backman, Andrew Lawton and Kathy Shadel. In fact, I think I said it as part of my introduction to Kathy for some reason. Um, but... You know, Kathy, I think of as the best of the internet, which was in that little period after 9-11 when there were all kinds of independent blogs by bloggers. They were all doing their own thing and they all linked to each other. And if certain of the bigger bloggers linked to you, like Instapundit, you got what they called an Instalunch. And at the same time, when pornography moved onto the internet, it was pornography run by the people who always uh, run pornography. That guy uh, uh, who owns Hustler, for who owned Hustler, for example. He so you could go to Hustler.com or whatever it was, and you'd pay money. And basically, the the same racketeers who ran the pre-internet porn business. Uh, the ones making all these films with professional porn stars in the San Fernando Valley were, were controlling pornography on the internet. And then something suddenly, what most societies would regard as rather weird, uh, happened. And uh, you'd go to your hardcore porn site and you'd go, wait a minute, 
Isn't that Auntie Gladys over there? What's she doing in this? And wait a minute, isn't that that's the that's the donkey from uh, number twenty-seven? How come the donkey? I thought they'd use professional uh, SAG members of uh, the donkey porn profession. And so porn became completely decentralized and porn is now something that uh, your auntie and your cousin and the guy across the street all do. And instead, it was independent opinion that became professionalized and controlled by all these platforms. So that instead of lots of independent blogs like Kathy's wonderful, wonderful site, that I so miss being able to go to first thing in the morning. And um, uh, they, they all disappeared into Facebook and Twitter and all that. I'm tired of them. People keep saying, why aren't you on this platform? Why aren't you on that platform? I don't like platforms. Sorry. And when I look into them, like the one, one of the ones I keep getting asked why I don't go on, they all turn out to be just the usual conservative ink grifter racket. So I'm, I'm not into that. And what happened, I think, there was that the, the Internet changed from a dispersed, decentralized cacophony of opinion into a... I mean, the only reason Facebook and YouTube and Twitter can tell you you can't say that is because you're on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, like all the Butch Boys. And so I find I find that I'd much rather porn had stayed in the hands of a few professional uh, guys doing sleazy things in the San Fernando Valley and that opinion had stayed highly decentralized and, and free. I mean, there are still people out there, Kate McMillan's website uh, and uh, and others. But that has been one of the biggest changes now. Uh, now, <clears throat> you've you've said, Eric, uh, that uh, is there a connection between this push to censor this, you know, you're unable to get your opinion. And as as we've seen most disgustingly with some of the widows and orphans I've interviewed over the last week about the vaccine that has killed their beloved husbands and parents and so forth. And they've put up snippets of that. They put up, <coughs> pardon me, their interviews with me. And immediately YouTube or whatever take it down as misinformation. As I said, we've now reached a stage where they don't fact check it. All these fact checkers like Full Fact, which is George Soros and uh, a few other American gazillionaires controlling, you know, they do this fact check thing, which is one of the most dishonest things out there. But they don't actually check. This lady is uh, talking to me about her widowhood and about the fact that there was a coroner's inquest. And the coroner said she, uh, her, her husband died of the vaccine. Now, these guys don't actually fact check that. They don't call her up and say, well, wait a minute. Are you really are you really widowed? Can you send me some uh, certificate? They don't do any. And we put the coroner's certificate up on screen and we've sent it to AstraZeneca to ask for a response. These people are basically denying her widowhood, denying that her husband is dead and denying that the cause of death was the vaccine. So it's again, it's just a system of control. But with the usual bollocks 
that attends us in the internet era where they're all self-proclaimed fact-checkers. Oh, that's interesting. Did you did you do a master's in, in fact-checking at Payless Shoe Source University? I'm so impressed. But you say... You rightly ask, Eric, whether there is a connection between the push to censor and the failures of our ruling class. I think, I don't think they regard what's happened as a failure because I think in large part they wanted it and they knew it, there would be casualties. They wanted to exert tighter control. The, the, uh, the looseness of of a, con of a conventional liberal democracy of, say, before the First World War, um, the, the one that uh, A.J.P. Taylor uh, used to talk about, his famous line, I remember it from history class many years ago, uh, whereby before the First World War, the average British subject could pass his entire life without encountering uh, anybody from the state except the postmistress at his village post office. And there was a lot of truth to that. But they don't want that world anymore. They want a much tighter world. And they've, you, because, you know, they all go to meetings and they talk about net zero and they talk about climate change. And if you think they're bonkers enough to believe that, then they would do exactly what they've done. And if you notice, as uh, Laura Perrins was talking about on, on our show just a few days ago, uh, the, the world they're ushering in, you, you drive less. And OK, you drive less because the price of gas has gone through the ceiling. But it's also what they wanted you to do, uh, isn't it? And you eat less meat because the price of meat is skyrocketing. Uh, and you don't use your uh, washer and your dryer as much because your electric bill is way higher than it used to be. This is all the stuff they've told us they want us to do for years. And now it's coming about. So it's not about the failure, Eric, of what they're doing. It's because this is the, the, they're building the world they've actually advocated this century. And in order for, for them to pull that off, it is necessary for them to restrict the public discourse. You wouldn't really believe what, you know, it's like uh, trying to get some of the stories we cover on air, because you know, if you raise them, if you if you if you just simply raise things that are beyond the bounds of the accepted discourse, the regulators uh, come and uh, and get you. Ray Winchester says, "Do a chat with James Dellingpole." <laughs> uh, James Dellingpole was a, a colleague of mine at the Specky and at the Telegraph, and he has a podcast. Uh, I think it's called the Delling Pod that's uh, that's out there, but I don't think he's ever. I did a show with uh, James. It wasn't the Delling Pod. I think it was called something else then. Uh, Cara, Cara, but 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 you know, I, I require an invitation to do that. I'm not I'm not going to go. Oh, please come on your show, James. Please, please, please. I want to come on your show really badly. I want to please, please, please. I wanted to go on Dancing with the Stars, and they wouldn't have me. So my second choice is the Delling Pot. I can't do that. It's unbecoming. 
in a man of my age. Carolinen writes, Mr. Stein, I'll be brief since this subject is such a crashing bore. Why are, why, why, are, why are we slouching to Armageddon? Well, I think you're seeing the intersection of various trends, uh, which is the rise of China and the fact that our only, the only opposition to the rise of China is not other nation states. We're not in a conventional period of great power rivalry, because as you know, the, the flailing superpower is led by a dead husk and prefers to, to operate, as it, as it has done for a while, uh, through these transnational bodies. Now, most of these transnational bodies are corrupt in other ways, because most of the people at these transnational bodies shouldn't be there. I mean, they include a lot of my uh, favorite countries, but nobody thinks they're going to be a decisive determinant of the uh, war in Ukraine or or net zero climate change or anything else. They're just there because America is a non-imperial power. And as it ascended to the leadership of the non-communist world in the 1950s, it chose to work not through conventional imperial arrangements, but through these transnational bodies. And one consequence of that is that, uh, that while that may be nice and self-effacing of an all-powerful America, now that America is no longer all-powerful, now that it's broke uh, and its uh, military superiority is, is totally crippled by the incompetence of its general staff, uh, the, the, that self-effacing aspect of America, which is, is uh, charming and speaks, speaks well for uh, American leadership in 1950, is an absolute bloody awful liability in 2022, because it means uh, we have China on the rise and no serious counter to it, except uh, that America has in recent years absorbed either a distinction between America and the European Union in America alone. Uh, that um, that uh, uh, America was still an, a great power of conventional action. So that if, for example, you have something like the Rwandan genocide going on, uh, America has to be a bit careful about what it says because if they decide that it's genocide, it's a conventional enough great power that it would be expected to do something about it. You know, in other words, its words, its words are, uh, are a prelude to action. That's not how it is with the European Union. The European Union guys all get together around the table and they just strike attitudes. And that's the way it was in the early years of this century. What's happened is now that America is a mere striker of attitudes. So it, a new administration comes to power and strikes attitudes on the Keystone Pipeline and strikes attitudes on the southern border. And uh, these, are, these are signs. So, so we have some, a, a fact, which is that we have a conventional empire arising 
without a shot being fired. You know, so China regards this whole war in Ukraine as a big pain in the neck because it doesn't want to do things like that. Its plan, which is going very well and is almost finished, is to just take out over the world without firing a shot by basically uh, taking strategic points on the map and yoking them to China through debt. And it thinks this Putin thing where you send in incompetent soldiers to blunder all over the place is a completely old-fashioned and stupid way of doing things. But the thing is, you can't prevent the rise of China with nothing. You've got to beat, you're only going to beat China with something. And when we have this transnational, feeble transnational bodies, it's much easier for them to find themselves de facto allied with China on most things. So that even though China isn't interested in climate change or, or net zero, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the wimps of the Western world transfer all their manufacturing to, you know, we don't need to bother, worry about, you know, smokestacks in Massachusetts or anything, because we lowered our carbon footprint by making China have all the, the smokestacks. So China has risen in part because what they're playing against, this vacuum of attitude-striking pansies, uh, actually uh, aids their long-term goal of taking the world over for uh, conventional conventional empires. Penns Wood says, Mark, it looks to me that your friend Boris despite his COVID criminal activities, has succeeded to the leadership of the West in the Ukraine-Russian war. I saw failure of the West in this conflict until Boris acted, even in flying weaponry round about Germany when they refused to allow the UK to use their airspace. How do you assess the UK response to this war, if not for Britain... Well, I think I I think that's simply the vacuum of American leadership. Now, people don't feel like that. Rand Paul uh, basically stalled the plan to give however much it is, a uh, you know, four hundred and eighty nine bazillion trillion billion cotillion dollars to Ukraine. Some absolutely stupid amount of money. They don't actually need that money. Uh, and uh, it's one thing to deliver it in weaponry, although a lot of that weaponry is going to wind up being sold on somewhere just because it's a corrupt government. But if they are stupid enough to just give them large amounts of cash, then uh, none of it's going to be anywhere. Now, they don't need it. So, so just to go back to Boris, you asked me about Boris. So there's this vacuum. He, uh, he did two things he did a couple of things that were very smart. If you take, and I understand many people have different views of this war, um, but the war started and all the Western leaders were, yay, go Zelensky, go Ukraine, uh, put the blue and yellow flag on your Twitter feed and all the rest of it. So if you take that view of it, Boris Johnson has been a lot more useful to the Ukrainians than Biden. He gave them those... uh, whatever that that uh, thing, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, every time they fire one, it totals a, a Russian tank and all the Ukrainians go, God save the queen. 
and everyone. So he's so and uh, yeah, I know there's going to be people out there who say, no, 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 that's all totally fake. That's fake news. It's not happening. They're filming that on a back lot in uh, Lviv or whatever. And, you know, uh, yeah, everything's rubbish and that could be rubbish, too. But uh, but whether it's actually happened or whether it didn't, it's worked in PR terms for Boris in that it got Kate Gate off the front pages. This is how stupid we are. <laughs> you know, the war in Ukraine, which Britain isn't actually fighting, uh, has saved Boris Johnson from being deposed because he ate a cake during lockdown. <laughs> now, now, if you're monitoring this from planet Zongo, you're a space alien. You're thinking you're reading that sentence. I think I've been learning English preparatory to my invasion of Earth for 15 years. And uh, what does that even mean? Uh, the war in Ukraine uh, saved Boris from being deposed because he ate a cake during lockdown. My dictionary doesn't work anymore. I'm not going to invade the Earth. I'm going home. But that's the way that's the way it was in the stupidity of uh, in, in the st stupidity of the media. Now we have this thing where Ukraine is, you know, everybody's flying into Kiev. So Justin and Sophie are flying into Kiev and they're meeting up with you two who are there. I mean, war is hell. It's a very close call. Would you rather be occupied by the Russian army or by Bono and you two? I mean, I, I'd be I'd be looking for a neither of the above box if that's the choice. But anyway, it's now pathetic. Justin is a complete wanker. So he leaves it too late to go and do when when Boris did it, you thought, oh, yeah, wow, he's just strolling around Kiev. Uh, and it was kind of cool. So he's had he's had in media terms a very good war. And the Ukrainians have had a good war. The Russians have been pu are being pushed back. And uh, the, the word I hear from Ukraine is that the Ukrainians think they can retake at least parts of the Donbass and parts of Crimea. So it's very... Um, so Boris has played that very well. But again, it's not... What's going on is not... It's not real. You know, this is... This is... My... My... Uh, belief in this is that after the fiasco of what happened in Afghanistan, and that's because the Taliban are not the kind of guys who are chit-chatting at Davos all the time. They're hardcore. So they didn't know, they don't know about all the phony baloney crap are meant to do. They just thought, oh, look, They've abandoned Bagram Air Base. Let's take it, get all the weapons, and then use the weapons to go to uh, Kabul and take uh, and take that. Uh, so again, they're not thinking. Then th these machinations that are going on, they're not thinking in the way that people. Own, uh, Ukraine is a big money laundering operation for powerful Americans. It's different in it's different in Afghanistan. So the feeling, oh, we need some, we were total losers in Afghanistan. How about arranging a war we don't actually have to fight in, but but we can do just so much yellow and blue flag waving that it will be taken as a great victory uh, when we all come out of it. The, 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 the thing about it, though, that is 
that is undeniably rubbish is that uh, these Western leaders, their first responsibility is to their own borders. So why is it, why is it a problem that the Russians take the Donbass, but it's not a problem if the European Union takes Northern Ireland or every Mexican peasant uh, minded to takes the, the southern border of the United States. You know, again, it's just one of these sort of FACO distraction things. Um, Veronica, who is one of our New Zealand uh, listeners, and it's always nice to hear from her. Veronica says, Hi, Mark. Bernie Sanders and the squad voted to send another $40 billion without any oversight to the Russo-American proxy war currently being played out in Ukraine. Does that signal the official end of the left-wing anti-war movement? Um, no, just, just to deal with that. The, the, the left is gung-ho for war as long as it is not a war in a, uh, in a nation's national interest. Now, what interest does the United States have in Ukraine? Uh, well, they've got all the, as I said, they've got all the money laundering. What, what national interest does the United Kingdom have in Ukraine, considering that it can't protect its southern border and, and all the rest of it? It's the perfect war. We had this with Clinton and Blair, that war is legitimate as long as you have no conceivable national interest in wherever the war's being fought. That's why Clinton liked to butch up and uh, send a few cruise missiles through uh, a Sudanese aspirin factory, because there's no conceivable American interest in wasting the world's most expensive missiles on a Sudanese aspirin factory. And that war, that liberal do-gooder war, is the war they're all is they're all pleased with. And you would hope that someone like Bernie Sanders, who last time round, you know, going back to 2015, used to say occasionally interesting things. He used to say that illegal immigration uh, just worked in the interests of the Koch brothers and that kind of thing. It's pathetic to see them now. The only one, I think Rand Paul managed to stop it temporarily. temporarily. Um, but it's not the end of it's the in, the the problem with the wars of George W. Bush were that they were in reaction to three thousand dead Americans in the smoking rubble of Washington D.C. and Lower Manhattan. That kind of war, the left is always opposed to. But a war that you have no conceivable, no detectable, real meaningful national interest in. That kind of war the left has always been on. Everyone is on board with this thing now, except a few voices on the right who are either ignored or condemned as Putin ass kissers. Yes, that's Mark Levin's opinion. Uh, Veronica says, love the club. You're doing great for a 137-year-old. Actually, I was a very spry 137-year-old until the COVID thing came, got going, but I am feeling my years these days. Uh, I mean, the banality of Putin ass kisses, it's not, it's there. The, the thing about it is, you know, this is why, one reason why 
Mark Levin never liked Trump. Why well, he was a never Trumper until whatever it was six weeks before the election, because he was very much on that wing of the Republican Party. Uh, which was in favor of military interventions. Now, I don't think you can look, as I've said, the whole American way of war doesn't work. And if you're an imperialist like me, uh, you don't want wasted time. If if you're going to go to somewhere on the other side of the earth that most of your citizens have never heard of and couldn't find on a map, Uh, you better know what you're doing there. And it better be for some purpose. And uh, and basically, and some people, uh, some some people just, Norman Podhoritz, for example, whose um, lovely wife Midge, Midge Dechter, died a couple of days ago. They they were a terrific couple, but they were original, the original neo-conservatives. And he was... He was in favor of military intervention and he didn't like the way his absolute bottom line was that he didn't like the way Trump uh, sort of repudiated the Republican wars of the first uh, 10 years of this century as uh, as stupid wars. I think I think that's the phrase Trump actually uses. And and he came round to to justify it by looking at what Trump in office did to ISIS, where ISIS controlled, you know, uh, what would have been uh, basically a, bun- a big bunch of territory, not quite as big as Ukraine, but getting there. And and uh, under Trump, ISIS shriveled away to nothing. Uh, so he came round to Trump's way of doing things. Whereas with Mark Levin, it was just, uh, as far as I can see, it was a commercial decision. He was, you know, simply not going to make as much money and not be on as many stations if he stayed being an ever-Trumper. So now he's saying, that, so now we're back. We got Lindsey Graham demanding boots on the ground here, there and everywhere. And if you object to that, you're, you are, as Mark Levin says, a Putin ass-kisser. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's that a recognition uh, that it's I think it's a recognition that America uh, lost in Afghanistan on a scale that no one would have thought possible, even for a withdrawal after 20 years. And in fact, a scale so total that the Butch boys can't actually bear to talk about it because it's too humiliating and it doesn't go with all the rah-rah stuff about the world's greatest military, the world's great, you know, the old one of the oldest lie. I can't remember who did it now, but one of the oldest military lines is it's better. You're better to have one lion commanding a bunch of donkeys than a uh, than uh, than a huge amount of lions being commanded by a donkey. It's it's better the other way around. And that historically has generally proven true. So you have these useless generals who make the Taliban the eighth or ninth biggest military on the planet. The whole money, no object. Again, that's a problem too. That's why I don't like this 40 billion for Ukraine. Ukraine are actually pushing the Russians back out of these villages. They don't need $40 billion of state of the art crap. They're actually doing it. They're actually getting on and doing it. And then you have, uh, you know, Bagram Air Base 
suddenly all America's quote unquote allies wake up and uh, where did all uh, what happened? Where did all the Yanks go? They didn't get a heads up about it. They just found the Americans were gone. Then the Taliban come in, take everything left at Bagram Air Base. Then uh, a few weeks go by and Chinese advisors are walking around Bagram Air Base. You know, there's more to it. Putin ass kisser isn't a clever phrase, is it? Don't you think, don't you think that after what happened in Afghanistan, we shouldn't rush headlong into a war with a guy who's got more nuclear weapons than anybody on the planet. And we've all been told that he's the, you know, he's the most unstable guy. We used to invite him to the G7. We called it the G8. He, he was an economic basket case, but he was in the club. And everyone, like George W. Bush, looked into his eyes and got a sense of his soul. Right? That was Levin's pal, George W. Bush. But now, don't you think that's a bit Putin ass kissy? Don't you? Great, oh, great one. You know, that, uh, that George W. Bush, he's looking into his eyes and seeing through to the other side and his butt. And he sounds like he's uh, got a kind of yen. I mean, I, I'm so sick of the pseudo butchness here. Ukraine is a complicated place. I, I, I like Ukraine. I understand that a lot of people it doesn't mean anything to them. But when I was there a, a, a few weeks back, you can't. These are all places where, uh, you know, borders come and go. And it's the great sinkhole of European history. As I tried to put it, it's in the middle where all the great empires meet. And there probably is a. Uh, there's, there's probably room for some kind of buffer entity between the European Union's eastern borders and Russia's western borders. But I can understand why Ukraine doesn't really want that and, and would rather just be in the club. But to say this is all, ah, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I don't think we should. Rand Paul doesn't want to send that $40 billion to Ukraine. Ah, oh, well, he's just a Putin ass kisser. Oh, for God's sake. You know, we've got nowhere. What more do you need to lose? You can't get bloody formula baby milk in this country. Everything's kaput. Nothing works. They're threatening. They're outside. You. Oh, well, we've got a, a big constitutional court and we've got this fantastic system where nine blokes in uh, black robes act as a super legislature deciding all the all the uh, all the big issues. And uh, so five out of nine of them decide everything that matters. And in practice, that just means a couple of the swingier kind like John Roberts decide everything that matters. But that's not quite enough. So we're going to send people round to uh, intimidate them into deciding nothing works. And one reason nothing works is because of the reduction of uh, quite subtle calculations to things like Putin ass kisses. Putin ass kisses. Uh, Chicken Soup says, for a long time, I've been interested in pulling together a resource for parents to help them teach their children about the music of Western civilization. Well, 
<laughs> I'm surprised our uh, internet server didn't delete that phrase. I've been appalled at the limited knowledge most children and adults have, although I would love to begin at the beginning and move through the centuries. However, 20th century music would be a great place to start for the Great American Songbook and the musicals and film scores, along with the crooners and the big bands of the musical wonders for all ages. So tired of that constant overarching rock beat in every place from elevators to dentist offices to funeral homes. Perhaps you would add your knowledge to such an endeavour. There doesn't seem to be any place where our music is celebrated. Michael Feinstein has actually started something like that. You know, I, I agree. I agree with you there. But I think the most important thing when you're talking about children is uh, that, that at that age, that is the time when you can actually teach them to open their ears to Haydn or Mozart uh, or Schubert. And if you get to the age of uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, and you haven't done that, it actually becomes much harder uh, to do it as an a, as an adult. That's that's just a fact. My, I mean, my my own kids, the the music teacher just basically wanted to teach them um, about uh, the pop songs she liked as a kid, and. Uh, had no greater ambition to do that. My my kid played in um, in the band at uh, my my kids played in the band at high school. All of them at one point or another. Um, and that guy had a slightly different bias. He he preferred the jazz and swing. So he had a separate jazz band at which he taught kids to swing, which actually is technically much diff much more difficult than playing in a typical string section. But I think that's I think that's the great loss. You know, again, I find so many of these, uh, you know, the, the the butch blokes on the right, you know, talking about Western civilization uh, as this thing. They never refer to any specific bits of it. Um, but it, it's apparently something they keep in the basement Western civilization, and they uh, and presumably on long holiday weekends they like to pull it out and examine bits of it, but it doesn't seem to have any specificity. Uh, Larry Durham says, uh, as for what I like about the club best, the Mark Stein Club, we're celebrating our fifth anniversary. Tales for our time alone is worth the price of admission. And the accompanying music is the cherry on top. It's opened a whole new world for an old rocker like myself. Happy birthday to club and clubbers. Well, thank you for that, Larry, because it gets back to what uh, I was uh, being asked about earlier. Yeah, I, um, I, I always in, I enjoy that. It's not an important thing. It's a peripheral thing, isn't it? I mean, and there's a lot we, we did get letters in the early days of Tales for Our Time saying, could you knock it off with the intro music? It goes on too long, you know, because I, uh, I watch this uh, podcast on YouTube and the intro music is just six seconds long and that's it. And you can't, this isn't six second kind of music. Just to take the bit we played on our first, uh, on our fifth anniversary show where we had a little clip from the 
our very first tales for our time with uh, Albert Kettleby's uh, In the Mystic Land of Egypt. It's not really a six-second thing, Matt. Not really a six-second thing. Um, Frank Gallenstein or Gallenstein says, your attitude-striking description was spot on. You continue to be profound. Well, I don't know about that, but I think that's true. I think that's true. And you have to have a, you know, th this is again where the uh, nature of our discourse doesn't help. Because if you look at, say, Chairman Xi, he doesn't have to strike these attitudes. It's a different kind of system. He, he can strike down your attitudes. He can just simply say, this, this is not part of the equation for me. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to act. I'm not going to set a target. They do have their targets in China, but the, actually the thing about them is that they're getting to where they want to be well before any of their targets because we set targets and the targets are... Then we come away from the... What do you do at that... Con you've, you've been gone uh, for 10 days at some conference. What do you do at that conference? Oh, we set a target. Oh, fantastic. That's, uh, that's great. Let's, uh, let's all go to the pub now. Fabulous. Michael Perino says, Mark, do you think there will be another Mark Stein cruise in the future or any other live event? I would... You know, we try it. We try it. Here's, here's, the, here's the problem. Um, it's hugely difficult moving around the world. And we have always, at our, we've always been an international club. So generally speaking, when we have, if you've been on a Mark Stein cruise, you'll know there are people there from all over. And you'll know that uh, we've had, you know, the guests we have on, on the cruise. There's uh, Anne and Phelim, who are Irish. There's, uh, uh, there's Michelle Buckman, who's uh, American. There's Tal Buckman, who's Canadian. It's, uh, I think of the Christmas show, where we had people from all over. And there's things you have to do for that. Uh, you have to... Make sure they're uh, they're legally able to work and whatever in what country you're bringing them into. But we had people from all over. Just the musicians that we like to have. Uh, you know, we basically have a band that is a core core Quebecois and a band that is core English. But they get jumbled up from time to time. It's become impossible. We try it, we try it, we try it, and, and we run up against so many obstacles. So I think what it's most likely to be is somewhere, um, un unless it's somewhere like Eastern Europe where they're all more relaxed about it, so like doing it down the Danube or something from Budapest or whatever, uh, moving east, you could do, you could probably do something like that. But otherwise, you're dealing with uh, people from all over the world flying from places that are all different COVID and vaccine requirements into, uh, in, into some location that has its own, own bunch of vaccine and COVID requirements. I mean, it's just, it's just a nightmare. It's wrecked the way I live. It's wrecked our cruise. I would love to do. I would love, but 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 we're going to try and do something, and it might just be we have to have rotating events 
within specific countries just for people in those countries because it's all been that's why I said I just think anyone who's been on board with any of this you know my my view of the vaccines is this there's obviously some of these vaccines are killing people uh, but the bigger picture I'd be interested to hear what Kate Smythe or some of our other you know medical experts feel about these things is that the bigger picture is that they made essentially, even if they didn't kill you, setting all that aside, even if they didn't injure you, setting all that aside, um, in, the, in the fullness of time, they make no difference to outcomes. And the more you have of them, the more they weaken your immune system. So if you have someone like uh, Emmanuel Macron, who, is, who, who was basically getting to the point where he wanted to mandate these jabs every two months. You would destroy, if you did that, you would utterly destroy your immune system. And I think that's a hard thing to ask someone to do just to go on a Markstein cruise. So uh, we're trying to think about, we're trying to think our way around it. Brian says, do you think the royal family will survive with Charles at its helm? They don't make them like Queen Elizabeth anymore. I had high hopes for William and Kate. Perhaps they will serve their country in a more dignified fashion than I expect. It makes me quite sad. Uh, yeah, I can't. I'm very worried about the, the Queen because, uh, well... You know, she she basically hasn't had a day off in 70 years. And for the first time, she appears tired. And for the first time in 70 years, she's pulling out of engagements. We've got her Platinum Jubilee coming up in a couple of weeks. And I hope she's OK for that. And then I read these careless things where there's talk now of the Prince of Wales becoming regent. I do not want him to become regent. As I said, my preference would be, and I think you could actually, I don't want to leave our, Ameri <laughs> our American listeners too far behind, but I think under the statute of Westminster, uh, I think you could make the argument that the appropriate thing, if the sovereign herself is not available to perform these functions, that it would be more appropriate for the United Kingdom to have a governor general, the same that Belize and Papua New Guinea and uh, St. Kitts and Canada and so on have too. But I'm, things can happen. I don't, well, here's the other thing. I think things are happening very fast with the disintegration of, of Western nations and so in a way, the bigger question may not be whether their present constitutional arrangements survive, but whether they survive. I think that's literally true in America. I think I think you can't take a country uh, that just a couple, you know, that just half a century ago was less than 200 million people uh, and then make it uh, 500 million people, most of whom come from the third world and expect it still to be America. I think that's just stupid. But again, you know, the people who are so quick to call you a Putin ass kisser, they don't actually seem to have much to say about that, do they? And when they do, they they subscribe to essentially 19th century. Im All I want is for people to come here legally 
And, well, maybe you ought to be thinking beyond that, because all the people who come here illegally eventually become legal, and then all their relatives become legal too. And next thing you know, you have nothing that is recognisable as America. Oh, why don't you ever talk about that on your stupid three-hour show? Um, uh, Tom Lewis says, uh, Toby Pilling says, you sometimes mock conservative administrations for just keeping the toilet seat warm until the left-wing ideologues actually start changing things. Could that be for the admirable, though misguided, reason of being wary of using governmental power at all? No, Toby, that's not the reason. That was true uh, with, say, Calvin Coolidge in the 20s, or rather the 1920s, but it isn't true now because we have had a century of increasing government encroachment on human existence. And we all know that. And we all know that certain, you know, you don't have to look any further than Obamacare, where it looks like the crappy, awful, god-awful rhino Republican establishment, Obamacare was useful to raise money on, but not to actually roll back and reverse. So that's the thing. They campaign against this stuff. Jimmy Carter uh, created the Department of Energy and the Department of Education. And they're both useless, as you'll know, uh, because energy, there's no energy in the Department of Energy. All they do is cancel things. And there's no education in the Department of uh, Education. That's, that's just basically for federalizing the propaganda. So they're all on message. These are two rinky-dink little nothing departments that the Republican platform has been committed to abolishing for over 40 years now and has never done one bloody... You know what was the greatest speech ever given by a Republican in my time in the United States? It was my... uh, It was by my uh, senator, as he then was, Bob Smith of New Hampshire, problematic figure, in many ways. But he was running for president in 2000 and he wasn't getting anywhere. So uh, he decided to quit the Republican Party and run as an independent. He was one of these deluded guys who seriously thought he could be president of the United States. So he quit the Republican Party and then he gives this big speech on the Senate floor uh, reading out all the things that the Republicans uh, platform is committed to doing, like getting rid of the Department of Energy and the Department of Education, but that they haven't done. (laughs) And then at the end of this long litany of do-nothing Republicanism, he announces he's quitting the party and he's becoming an independent. And then, of course, nobody wanted him as a presidential candidate as an independent either. (laughs) So he then asked if he could come back to the Republican Party and negotiated a deal where he could get all his old committee assignments back because that's what was important to him. But that rare moment of honesty when he said, look, we say we're going to abolish this and do that and and legislate the other, and we haven't done any of it. (laughs) It's almost like it's all crap. That was one of the great moments. That was one of the great moments. So I don't think it is that, Toby. I think it's just that there's no... There's no energy in legislative conservatism in America, 
in Canada, if you look at the Harper years, in Australia, if you look at the Scott Morrison years, and in the UK, if you look at the Johnson years. Tom Lewis says, Mark, would you share your opinion on the upside and the downside of Victor Orban? Stay safe, stay free. Well, here's the thing. You know, we get into a very big thing here, which is that whether government leaders exist out of abstract commitments to philosophical proposition. We get really into the dispute that Enoch Powell had with Mrs. Thatcher uh, at, uh, at some conservative ginger group that they used to go to in Parliament every Monday evening in the 80s. And Mrs. Thatcher, I've mentioned this before, Mrs. Thatcher used to talk about how we would fight for our values. And Enoch Powell said, that's complete rubbish. Uh, I would fight for England even if it had a Marxist government for no reason other than, than he's an Englishman and somebody's invaded England. And we see that. So I and I tend to come down on his side of things, you know, people in, in part because of my trip to Ukraine, people, people in Ukraine are fighting for Ukraine because they're Ukrainians and a bunch of people who aren't Ukrainians have invaded the country. But it's also important, I think, because it's led us astray that somehow you go in, you occupy Afghanistan and you don't deal with the situation as exists. You just think you can introduce uh, gay pride uh, month to Afghanistan and you can introduce take your child bride to work day and all the other rubbish. And, and they'll just go along with it, like the guy in Iraq who... Uh, as the liberators came through, uh, was asked what America meant to him. And he said, Dem democracy, whiskey, sexy. And they think it's going to be that easy. And, and, it, and it isn't. If you go to war uh, for values, it's not likely in, in that way to go well. And, and that's the difference with someone like Viktor Orban. He's just doing what he thinks is best for Hungary. It's the difference when you cross the Iron Curtain. That's all it is. I'm, a, I'm Hungarian and this is how I govern Hungary. And in the West, increasingly, we've accepted the proposition First, that we are in an era where the electors can actively choose certain things so they can vote for a candidate who is going to build a wall on the southern border. But we all know that the wall's not going to happen. They can vote for a candidate who's committed to leaving the European Union uh, but we all know that he's not really ever going to be able to. And this is why I think we've taken refuge in the, a lot of this rubbish about values and so forth is because uh, they're used in a strange way. This is not who we are. That's an appeal to values. What, is it, what does it mean, this is not who we are? Actually, who we are, if you look at polls, is a country in which the majority of re Republican voters and even a majority of Democrat voters don't want open borders. But they're not going to get it because even though that's who they are, this is not who we, the people who run the country, are. And that's the difference with these, you know, on the balance of, on the balance of it, Auburn has made uh, Hungary better 
in significant key respects. And that's good enough for most Hungarians. It's not something that people who vote for Emmanuel Macron could say. Uh, that's that's the problem there. Uh, Philip Paustian or Paustian says, do you think it might be time to have Randy <laughs> Newman's "Let's Drop the Big One and See What Happens" as a song of the week? <laughs> Happy fifth birthday to the club. He also says, as a physician, that's him, not me, your understanding of the vaccines is spot on. They are not worthless, but simply not beneficial to patients. Um, we, ha we had a lot of, uh, where did we, uh, we had like some, uh, some, a couple of musical questions I wanted to get to uh, while I'm in the, uh, while I'm in the mood for it. Where did they uh, all go? Dale Owens says, once upon a time, he's writing from Milan, the San Remo Song Festival in Italy was a serious event that produced some excellent songs and singers. That's true, Dale. Uh, it produced uh, Volare, uh, just to name the most obvious song that came out of it. And among singers, it produced the delightful Giliola Cinchetti, uh, who uh, I would just love to be uh, sitting in a room listening to her sing. I uh, don't know whether that will ever happen again. Uh, but what do you think about the Eurovision Song Contests, continues Dale, coming up tomorrow in Turin? Was it ever worth watching? Well, they started, here's the thing. They started uh, just as uh, conventional pop songs, a mainstream uh, vocal pop was seeding to rock and roll. So you have two choices then. You can either say, are we going to carry on doing, you know, uh, conventionally crafted pop songs with interesting harmonies requiring orchestral arrangements and with uh, lyrics that rhyme, etc., etc. Or are we just going to get try and get a piece of the rock and roll action? And they eventually settled, in large part, after Britain's first victory. I think it was Puppet on a String. Sandy Shaw by uh, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who uh, won for, uh, in whatever it was, 1967, 1968, something like that. And after that, then they just went in for the boom, bang, a bang, ding, ding, a dong, trying to get a piece. Yeah, yeah, swing amid the rock and roller. Uh, and that that was enough for them. But but I don't know what decision I would have been made. I would have made in that in that kind of thing. Something has been lost. Songs aren't as important to the young today. Songs were an important way because they were actually the the way you could have contact with the opposite sex. You went to a dance and the dance was the place where you would meet a girl from another town whom you didn't know and you would ask her to dance and then there might be a slow romantic dance and so you would be touching this girl from another town who you'd never met before and music was essential to that. Now of course in the hookup uh, culture they just uh, sexed each other their genitals or whatever they do and, and they don't actually want to get into a room and hold each other and, and touch each other anyway 
because it's uh, you know they'd rather. So you don't need m music and song as a social glue there, and I think that's what's changed. Tim Boggs says, Mark, what music made you fall in love with songwriting? Were the songs the lure that drew you into musicals, or was it the magic of the theatre, something else? Were you drawn to musicals first, or did music on the radio lead you to discover musicals? If so, what music did you listen to as a boy? Did your parents instill in you a love for music? There's an awful lot in there, Tim. Um, I didn't I didn't really get into I watched film musicals and every so often I would be taken to a musical but I didn't really get into the music uh music as drama in that that sense and until uh sort of relatively late in my teens. My father always, my father had a record collection. My mother loved Nat King Cole too, but uh, my father exercised more dominance over the dance set, I would say. And, and he tended to, you know, there, there would be albums he'd get that he'd like enormously. So he'd He'd wake up early and sort of blast them out everywhere. Uh, and I got sort of tired of that. And I'd I'd start going through his record collection, mainly for the stuff that he didn't play. And I found things, things that I still play on some of our little shows here. I found like a Buddy Greco single uh, that I thought, and I met, I met Buddy in later, in later years, fabulous guy. Um, and uh, but I knew him. I first encountered him that little single that my dad had and never played. And likewise, he had an EP extended play, four songs on it by Sammy Davis Jr., including Birth of the Blues and uh, Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone. And again, I, I thought that was a terrific EP. And again, I met uh, Sammy Davis uh, years later and you know that was my first connection uh, to him um so uh, so uh, if i had to give an honest answer i liked all the stuff you heard on the radio and actually sue cook who was on the um mark stein show a couple of weeks back sue um, I first met when she was on the Michael Aspel show at Capital Radio, and uh, and I was down there to do a um, a young DJ type thing on their Hullabaloo uh, show. So I liked all the uh, what was it, girl? I, Johnny Guitar Watson, girl, I need it. So on the one hand, I was playing Johnny Guitar Watson, girl, I need it, and then I would go home, and I had these like various obscure uh, corners of my dad's record. I'm getting too bogged down in all all this thing. We always like to close with a bit of music, so we should get on to that because it's the fifth birthday of the Mark Stein Club. So uh, naturally, I thought I'd play one of the big hits from five years ago. But for reasons we've been talking about, that's all total crap. <laughs> so I thought, okay, 
Let's have a look and uh, see what was happening 55 years ago. And the number one record 55 years ago on the fifth day of the fifth month was Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Something Stupid. It was such a big hit that the record company said to Frank, OK, you've got to do a follow up. And he said, you mean something even more stupid? Uh, but we've done all that on our Song of the Week. So no, 55 years ago. So I thought, well, how about 105 years ago? Darktown Strutter's Ball. I'll be down to get you in a taxi, honey. You better be ready about half past eight. That is a great song. That is American energy at its very best. Very best. We're a long way past that now. But we played it uh, on the 100 Years Ago show just a few weeks ago. So uh, I don't think I should play it again. So, so much for five years ago, 55 years ago, 105 years ago. How about 155 years ago? Uh, 1867, birth of the Dominion of Canada. Uh, but that wasn't the only exciting thing happened that year. What a year for popular music. The Maple Leaf Forever. The Blue Danube, The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze, Arthur Sullivan's first comic opera, Box and Cox. And I thought I'd pick this one, written and sung by the great music hall artiste, George Laban, to a tune by Alfred Lee, introduced by Mr. Laban in Leeds, Yorkshire, in August 1866, and the hit of the halls in London, all through 1867. It was so popular that in May 1868, a crowd of 2,000 sang it with lusty enthusiasm at the hanging of the Fenian revolutionary Michael Barrett outside Newgate Prison. That was the last public execution in England. And what a way to take one's leave. Some people go for funny drinks and down them by the pail like coffee, cocoa, tea and milk and even Adam's ale. For my part, they can keep the lot. I never would complain. I wouldn't touch the blooming stuff. I only drink champagne for champagne. Champagne Charlie is my name Champagne drinking is my game There's no drink as good as fizz, fizz, fizz I'll drink every drop there is, is, is All round town it is the same By pop, 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 I roast to fame I'm the idol of the barmaids And Champagne Charlie is my name I earned my famous title through a hobby which I've got Of never letting others pay, however long the shot Whoever drinks at my expense has no need to complain For everyone I treat alike 
I make them drink champagne for champagne jolly is my name champagne drinking is my game there's no drink as good as fizz 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 I'll drink every drop there is 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 all round town it is the same by pop 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 by rose to fame I'm the idol of the barmaids And Champagne Charlie is my name Champagne Charlie is my name Champagne drinking is my game There's no drink as good as this, this, this I'll drink every drop there is, is, is All round town is the same My top, 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 my nose to fame Champagne Charlie is his name. Actually, Tommy Trinder is his name, a great English comedian of the mid-20th century who starred as Champagne Charlie in the film of that name. A 155-year-old hit with music by Alfred Lee and words by George Laban. Champagne Charlie is my name. Champagne drinking is my game. There's no drink as good as fizz, fizz, fizz. I'll drink every drop there is, is, is. Crack open a bottle of fizz, fizz, fizz and drink every drop there is, is, is as you raise a glass to the Mark Stein Club this weekend. We'll have more fifth birthday celebrations. Rick McGuinness's movie pick, The Hundred Years Ago Show, on and on. All here at Stein Online. And I'll be joining Neil Oliver on his terrific GB News show, Saturday, 6 p.m. London time. That's 1 p.m. North American Eastern. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.